Well, we've come to our time in our worship together this morning where we study the Word of God, and so I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 12. Of course, we're continuing our systematic study through this great book, and we we understand as Christians that this book fits within the theological category of what we know to be eschatology. Eschatology simply means the study of last things or the study of the final things. So this morning, as we look at this book, it might seem more like a theological class than a sermon. Um, But as we go, preferably you'll understand why. Revelation is all about the final stage of history, uh, the final stages of humanity as we know it and see it upon this earth. And I am sure that that subject content alone, um, I'm sure that is why mankind is so curious about what this book says. Mankind throughout the ages has been curious as to what is coming, what will happen with mankind, what is going to come in the future. And so just that very understanding or thought alone causes a lot of curiosity about what this book says. And speculations, of course, run rampant concerning the meaning of the things mentioned in this book. And I think even through our own study, as we've gone from chapter 1 all the way to where we are here in chapter 12, even through that, our eyes have been opened, our our uh, hearts have been stirred within us in many ways. Our curiosities, in fact, as people have been pricked concerning the end of all things. And what we have seen thus far has been great judgment. Judgment being poured out upon all of humanity who is on the earth during the time of the tribulation because throughout the history of mankind, throughout the history of humanity upon this earth, the testimony of God has been rejected concerning His Son. This is why the judgment is coming. In fact, 1 John chapter 5 and verses 9 through 11 say this to everyone. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. God, in His great wisdom, has given to mankind His testimony. And it is a testimony concerning His Son. And John wants everyone to know that. And so in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9-11, through 11, he begins that way. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater because... God has this testimony that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. The one who does not believe God has made God a liar. Why? Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's the testimony of God to humanity. 
that He has sent His Son and eternal life is in no one else except His Son. Mankind rejects the testimony of God. Therefore, God's wrath abides on unbelieving mankind. And in our study of Revelation, we have been seeing the unfolding of the culmination of this throughout the entire book. We've been seeing what is taking place on earth, getting a glimpse into the future, if you will, from God's perspective as God carries it out on earth. And we've been getting what is happening on the earth as God resumes His plan with His chosen people, the Jews. We read a little bit about that this morning out of Romans. But if you are curious like me, then you wonder, as you're reading this, what the view of all of this is like from heaven. We get a view from earth, see what's happening on the earth, but what is the perspective? What is the accounting of all of this from heaven? And I believe we get the answer to that very question and more as we move from chapter 11 into chapter 12 and following. Chapter 12 opens the second half of this book. And just by the way, if you're interested in Bible trivia at all, you understand that the verse numbers and the chapter numbers in your Bible are not inspired. God did not give us a Bible with verses and chapters. He gave us these letters from him. Men have put chapters in there and titles in there and verse numbers and those kinds of things. So they're not inspired. But it is interesting that of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, are the exact middle of those 404 verses. Chapter 12 has 17 verses. Right in the middle between verses 8 and 9 is the exact middle of this entire book. You might want to tuck that back in your head the next time you're playing a Bible game and somebody asks you one of those silly questions. So this chapter opens the second half of this book. And before we ever get to the pouring out of the final seven bowls of judgment, God graciously informs our curiosity by giving us another parenthetical pause. We've seen a couple of those already. This is another one. It's not a pause in the chronology of the tribulation itself. It is still seven years. That seven years is still successive. It's going on uh, from, from the beginning of the tribulation to the end over seven years of time. And those seven years still occur without any stopping. So this isn't a pause in the, in the outworking, the chronology of the tribulation itself. Those events aren't being a pause, but the pause here, the parenthetical pause, is simply a, a pause in the telling of the events. It's like when you look at one of those maps and you see a, a map full and then the, the, the producer of that map has this uh, little circle that's kind of drawn out with a little triangle, you know, and it's like a, 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 a greater view of that little point on the map that you can't see on the big map, but it's like a drawn out. That's what this parenthetical part is really and as we will see there is a change in perspective in the telling of the events so that john now and all of us we get a perspective of history 
For John, it is a personal history. It is a history about his own people, a history about the Jews, because it's a history of what takes place with them. And you and I get this view of the tribulation, and the perspective is the perspective from heaven. It's not the perspective of what's going on on earth. We'll see some of that as we walk through it. But really, the perspective is a perspective from heaven. And I just want to show you uh, how you can kind of understand that and see that in the flow. Because just to help us understand that, uh, the word heaven is used some 14 times from chapter 12 through chapter 15. And I just want to kind of show you this a little bit. In chapter 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. Chapter 12, verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Verse 7 of chapter 12, and there was war in heaven with Michael and his angels waging war. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Verse 12, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Go to chapter 14 for a moment. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters. Chapter 14 and verse 6, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach. In verse 13 of that same chapter, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, chapter 14 and verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. Chapter 15, verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Chapter 15 and verse 5, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And of course, there's other mentions of heaven, although not specifically saying in the heavens, although it's uh, the word heaven is being used even in chapter 13 and back even in chapter 8 of chapter or verse 8 of chapter 12. Notice verse 8, and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. That is the angels that Michael was fighting against. Over in chapter 13 and verse 6. And he opened his mouth, talking about one of the beasts. He opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Chapter 13 and verse 13. He, this is talking about another beast. And he performs great signs so that even, that he even makes fire come down out of heaven. Again in chapter 14 in verse 8. You see, and another angel, a second one, followed saying. This is following the one angel in verse 6 who's flying in mid-heaven. So there's an, another angel and we know he's in the heavens because he's following this other angel saying what he is saying. One's giving the gospel, this one's saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Verse 9 of that same chapter, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, He too is in 
the heavens. And so over and over and over and over again, from chapter 12 through chapter 15, you have this perspective from heaven. What is going on in the heavenlies during this time? And so all of these chapters are are giving us a view of everything that we've already seen in chapters 4 through 11. A view of what we've already seen in, in summary fashion, really. And even going back all the way to before the creation of the world, as we'll see. And all of it is from the perspective of heaven. And all of it is bringing in the cosmic war that Satan has waged since he was ever created against God himself. And again, just to keep us informed as to the content of these chapters, you'll notice Satan, also called the dragon, the serpent, he's mentioned under one of those names in these chapters no less than 12 times. This is a perspective of heaven, from heaven, in reference to what has been taking place since God created and what has been taking place between God and Satan and all of those whom are part of His realm. The two beasts that we'll see in chapters 13 through 15 are satanically controlled. So this is heavenly war. This is a perspective on the history of Satan's attempts to thwart God's divine plan to redeem the Jews. This has been going on since creation ever began. Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God for bringing a Savior into the world through His chosen people. And all of this will unfold as we walk through these chapters. And so just by way then of introduction, let's lock in our minds, lock in our understanding that when you come to chapter 12 of Revelation, you're looking at history from the perspective of heaven. You're looking at history of the Jewish people as Satan attempts to usurp God's plan for them. You remember we ended chapter 11. We heard the words of the seventh angel sounding the seventh trumpet. And we know from chapter 10, upon the sounding of that seventh trumpet, there would be the reality of the mystery of God being finished. Remember that? The mystery of God is now finished. And up to this point, we've seen the prophetic outline of the final days through the events of the tribulation. And in chapter 12, we get to see this from the perspective of the spiritual realm. And so we're introduced to some key characters that move across the pages of history in this final time. And these characters, by the way, they're introduced to us and presented to us here in symbolic fashion. Symbolic fashion. Within these verses, you see six. You could probably even divide it up into seven 
key players. I'll just list them for us, and then we'll start to try to unfold some of these. These are the, the seven players that we'll see from chapter 12 through chapter 15. You have the woman, the woman. You have, secondly, the dragon. Third, the man-child or the child who is male. Of course, clearly listed, you have Michael, the archangel. You have the beast of the sea in chapters 13, 1 to 10. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 13, you have the beast of the earth. And then in, actually back in chapter 12, verse 17, you have, you could maybe even say, the remnant of the seed of the woman as another character. So there's at least six, possibly seven, and we'll look at them as we go. So these are the players in the unfolding, the characters in the unfolding of this scene from heaven concerning the last days of God's purposes in the earth. His purposes for the Jews. Now, of course, you well know for our time this morning, I want to spend our time on just the first part of this. We're going to read through the first six verses where we're introduced to the first three of these characters. And just so you know, because of what is here and what we must understand, we're only going to get to the first two verses. My brain is too small and too twisted like a sponge in all of this to try to dump it all out in one moment. Just can't handle it. So I want to begin just by reading this from verse 1 through verse 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,200 and 60 days. One of the most important things that we must do as we begin to look at these chapters is to identify these characters. To identify who it is these symbols rep- represent. And obviously, some are more clear from the text of Revelation than others. And yet, we know that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. 
the best way to understand Scripture is to go to Scripture. And so we can look at other Scriptures to help us in identifying these characters. So let's begin then first where our text begins and identify this woman. And I believe it's important for us to start here, not be simply because the text starts here and we're just going to take it as it comes, but because if we get this identity wrong, if we misidentify who this woman is or what this woman represents, then we will understand or we will not understand who the remnant of the seed of the woman is and we can not clearly identify who the man-child is. So we must get this right. So let's begin then in verse 1. Notice it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. We need to stop right there for a moment. And a great sign appeared in heaven. The, The word sign is a very important word for us here. It is a word we cannot just breeze over and simply go, okay, yeah, I understand that. We need to fully understand that. And in its original form, the word is samion. And just like a physical sign that you might see as you drive down the roadway, so too is this sign. A sign ought to draw our attention to what we are about to see or what is about to come. What we are about to enter. That's what a sign helps us understand. Samion, same thing. It is a sign. It is a a directional aid. It's a directional aid. But it is not the thing itself. It is a directional aid for us, but it is not the thing itself. It is a sign. It is pointing us to something. And so, there is a great sign that appears in heaven, and this sign is a woman. This woman is a directional aid. It's a a pointer to us. And so, against the backdrop of the open temple that we saw in verse 19 of chapter 11, against the, the clouds of judgment, against all that appears there in the heavens, this sign of a woman is there. And every successive phrase that follows her, or this name, woman, only adds to the grand description of the sign. There are aspects of her description. There are aspects of the directional aid. There are aspects of us to help understand who this actually is representing. And there are a whole host of strange and bizarre interpretations to this, as you could well imagine. As you read, as you go to commentaries and theological books, as you come across things in your own reading about end times, I'm sure you have come across some of the interpretations, and we certainly cannot go through them all, and some of them aren't even worthy of our time to go through. They're so bizarre. But let me simply begin by identifying who this cannot be, who it cannot be. First, some say that what John is seeing here through this sign is none other than the Virgin Mary. 
fact, the Catholic Church takes it that way, believing that they even have statuettes that even exemplify this kind of thing, woman standing on the moon and all this kinds of stuff. Maybe you've seen things like that. They say this is Jesus' mother. But, and to help our own Bible study methods, how you study the Bible, I want to show us how that cannot possibly be accurate. How it cannot possibly be be accurate. Why? Because in Bible study, in the process of understanding the Scripture, as you read the Bible, we must look at the entire passage. Because it helps us to inform, or it helps to inform our contextual understanding about whatever it is it's talking about. And in this case, this woman. Notice in verse 6, it says of this woman, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And we know, we understand from our previous study and from our look at the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9 and other places and in light of our study of Revelation, 1,260 days is simply a terminology for the second half of the tribulation. You can be rest assured, Mary is already dead. Mary is not alive in the tribulation. Mary could not flee to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God for 1,260 days. Notice in verse 14. Of that same chapter, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's the same amount of time as verse 6. It's 1260 days, it's 42 months, it's three and a half years. She was protected away from the presence of the serpent. Notice verse 17 and the dragon was enraged with the woman. And went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, the first thing that we can for sure say, even from reading this entire passage, is that if this is referring to the Virgin Mary, then we must ask and answer some questions, some critical questions, about what these verses tell us the woman does. The woman flees to the wilderness. The woman is protected by God for 1260 days, nourished by God in in miraculous ways. The serpent seeks the remnant of her seed. We know from Scripture that Mary never did any of those things. So to apply these Scriptures, these verses in Revelation 12 to the Virgin Mary is inconceivable. This cannot be the Virgin Mary. But there are others who come along and say, okay, this is referring to the church, the church universal, that that we're part of this, that this woman is is the church. And there are well-known Bible teachers that have written on these things, and they say that this is a symbol, this is a sign of the church during the tribulation. 
They point to passages back in Isaiah chapter 50 and Isaiah 54 and Hosea chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 as their proof. Why? Because Israel is known as the people of God and the church is known as the people of God. And so they equate those two together. And it is true that the Bible refers to both Israel and the church as being God's people. You can find references in the Old Testament for Israel as God's people. And you can find references in the New Testament for the church being God's people. But what you cannot do is assume from those passages that that means that they are one and the same. You cannot do that. To do that is to come away with the wrong conclusion. And in fact, the scriptures that are often quoted actually teach the opposite. In the scriptures, Israel and the church have always been distinct. And here in chapter 12 of Revelation, it shows that this cannot be the church for one clear reason. If this woman is a symbol to describe the church, then according to Revelation chapter 12, get this, if that's the case, then it is the church that gave birth to Christ. And to say that the church gives birth to Jesus Christ is to clearly and unequivocally contradict the Scriptures. You say, why do you say that? Because according to the Bible, it is Christ who began the church. In other words, the church was born from Christ. We are out of His flesh we are born through his blood he is not born from the church in fact go back to ephesians 5 for a moment because this is one of the clear passages that they go to and i certainly believe and hope to show you that it teaches the very opposite of that it's interesting in ephesians chapter 5 That when Paul is referring to marriage as a picture of the church, it's interesting that when he begins to describe the relationship, he starts to talk about the bone that was taken out of Adam and, and, and that God created Eve from it. He, he speaks to that. And Adam says in Genesis chapter 2, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's what Adam says in Genesis 2 when God puts him to sleep, takes the rib from Adam or the bone from Adam and he, and he fashions the woman and, and God wakes Adam back up and he looks at Eve and he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my Flesh, And then you arrive in the New Testament and the Apostle Paul in commenting on the relationship of Christ to the church through the picture of that of a husband and a wife in Ephesians 5, he refers back to Genesis chapter 2. He refers back to the beginning when God created woman and he says, Notice in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 31. 
Because we are members of his body, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And the two shall become one flesh. And notice verse 32. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, as Eve came from Adam... Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And Eve was subordinate positionally to Adam. Not spiritually, but certainly positionally by how God designed it. So too the church came from Christ and is positioned subordinately to Christ. Christ did not come from us. And so to say that The sign, go back to Revelation chapter 12, to say that the sign in heaven in Revelation chapter 12 is symbolic of the church is to say that the church brought forth Christ. The one who we clearly represent. The one who is clearly the child that she is Uh, about to birth this one who in verse 5 she gives birth to a son a male child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne this is clearly Jesus Christ so to say that the church is the woman would be to say that we gave Christ his place he came from us And therefore, that would contradict Scripture. Furthermore, furthermore, in Scripture, the church is never referred to, by the way, as woman, by the title woman. You can search Scripture high and low, and you will never find the church referred to as woman. It is always referred to as the awaiting bride of Christ. The church is the waiting bride of Christ. And that marriage takes place at the wedding feast of the Lamb yet to come even in our study of Revelation. And so if this is the church in Revelation 12, then the church is pregnant with the very one to whom it will marry in the future. There is nothing in the scriptures at all that can even come close to supporting that kind of conclusion. So it's not Mary and it's not the church. So who is this woman? Who does this woman represent? I believe it's clear that she represents the nation of Israel both spiritually and historically. I believe it represents Israel as the particular nation through whom God would bring his only begotten son into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, if we're going to be consistent in our understanding of this text, then we must be consistent in taking our understanding of the symbol from the rest of Scripture. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly represented as a woman. I just want to show you this in a few places. And I hope 
in this theology class, we're still all together. I hope our brains aren't twisted so much that we've checked out and we said, what's this got to do with me? Listen, stick with me. This is very important for your understanding of all of this and the outflow of this. Go back for a moment to Isaiah 54. And we're just going to look at a couple passages back in the Old Testament. I just want to show you this idea that Israel is referred to as a woman. Isaiah 54. Isaiah, obviously, we understand he's prophesying to Israel. This is a prophecy concerning Israel. In Isaiah 54 and verse 5, notice he says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Israel is seen here in the picture as the wife or the woman of the husband. God being the husband. Turn over to Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to see this throughout all these passages. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 32. God says, again, prophesying through Ezekiel to Israel, You adulterous wife, who takes strangers instead of her husband. You see, God referring to His chosen people as a woman, a wife. Israel is known here and seen here in picture, in symbol, as a wife, God speaking about them in this fashion, in relationship fashion to them. They're seen as a woman. Isaiah, they're a woman here, a wife. Go over to Hosea, one of the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Hosea chapter 2. Notice the Notice the pronouns used for for Israel. This is the restoration of Israel. This is God restoring His people. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness. Interesting, there's terminology even right there about the woman in Revelation 12 who's taken to the wilderness to be protected by the one whom is her Husband, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Accor as the door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Who came up from the land of Egypt? Israel. Israel was brought up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord that she will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Beli, which is the Baals. She'll no longer worship the false gods. This is about the restoration of Israel. This here, even here, she's referred to as a woman, as a as the female, as the wife of God. Let's go back to one more place, Jeremiah. Because this is 
very interesting. Jeremiah chapter 31, where God is remembering the very covenant that he has made with Israel. Verse 27, days are coming, Jeremiah 31, 27, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, and I will come about, and it will come about that as I watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's a bitter time, they're not going to say that, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on an edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see, this is a covenant with Israel. This is a covenant of the the woman Israel with the, the husband God. But this is a covenant, verse 33, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, I believe he's prophesying about the millennial kingdom there in which Christ will rule from his throne. So go back now to Revelation chapter 12 because when we think along those lines and those passages, we can understand that because of the national sin of Israel, because of Israel's rejection of God's plan, that God, her husband, lays aside the covenant and Israel is spoken of as forsaken. In fact, Isaiah 54 Verses 3 and following highlight her in that way. In verse 6 it says, she is forsaken. So in the symbolism, she is in a state of forsakenness because of disobedience. But that's not her standing in the heart of God. She's forsaken because of disobedience. She's been set aside for a time because of disobedience. And yet in the heart of God, she certainly is not forsaken. And so when you come to Revelation chapter 12, Israel is presented here as the woman, as God intended her to be spiritually and historically. She's fulfilling the divine purpose of God, being the nation through which the Son would come into the world. That's why Russ read Romans chapter 9 this morning. Because Romans chapter 9 clearly delineates in Paul's heart that all Israel is not Israel. But God's elective pleasure and purpose to save a remnant of those whom are His. 
So this woman is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel as God intended her to be. And I really believe that this is why she is described the way she is. And this helps us understand this to be Israel. Notice, first of all, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, look, clothed with the sun. John looks at this sign in the heaven, this this symbol, this directional aid. He sees this, and this woman is clothed with the sun. She is in blazing light. That's what the sun does. That's what the sun is doing even as we speak. You can look outside and see the blazing nature of the sun. And I believe that simply is telling us of God's glory. God's glory is blinding light. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. He couldn't even look into the blinding light. When Peter, James, and John were up on the mount, Jesus peels back his flesh just to reveal a little bit of his glory. They fall to their faces because they cannot even look upon it. When Moses was wanted to see God, God hid him in the cleft of the rock because God said, you cannot look upon me and live. And he let his glory pass by. There's no greater light upon this earth in the physical realm than the sun. And if we put this with God's intent for Israel, if we put this in our minds as the woman of Israel in her created intent by God, then God intends Israel, as far as the earth is concerned, to have His glory centered there. Christ, when He returns, is going to return where? In Israel, the Mount of Olives. It's not going to touch down 150 miles somewhere else out in the middle of the desert because he's got a bad GPS. Listen, his glory is going to be centered right on Israel. Israel is the focal point of all history because God put himself there. And so she, representing Israel, is clothed with the sun. Notice, secondly, her position, her position, the moon under her feet. What does the moon do? In the physical realm, what does the moon do? The moon has one purpose. It reflects the sun. That's what it does. And therefore, here, John sees Israel as the having the responsibility, the reflection responsibility of the glory of God to the world. The Bible tells us that Israel was the channel of divine revelation. Right? Since it was through Israel that we received the divine scriptures, and it was through Israel that we received the living word of God, Jesus Christ. So from the perspective of God, Israel was enrobed in his glory and they were to reflect that glory to mankind. And so she's covered with God. She is to reflect God. And third, notice what's on her head. On her head is a crown of 12 stars. This is the victor's crown, the Stephanos. It's a crown of honor. 
12 stars. Obviously and accordingly, these stars are referring to the 12 tribes of Israel through which God would reflect that glory. You say, how do you know that? Well, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Go back to Genesis chapter 37 for a moment. During the beginning days of the nation... Genesis chapter 37, we find Joseph. Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. Jacob, we know, later on, was name was changed to Israel. Joseph is the favored son of Israel. And so you have the records of the generations of Jacob. And Joseph, when he in verse two, when he was seventeen years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a young youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. The little brother was a tattletale. Now Israel loved Joseph. Loved him more than all his sons because he was the son in his old age and he made him a very colored tunic jacket, a multicolored jacket. We know the story. And his brothers saw this favoritism that their father had for their brother and so they hated him all the more. They couldn't even speak to him on friendly terms. Verse 5 says, Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. You say, why? Because he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, when we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. You want to talk about fighting words. And here's what his brother said to him. They understood the dream. They knew what Joseph was saying. He said, they said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, now, he had still another dream. And he related it to his brothers and said, lo, I... I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. There's some similar language. And he related it to his father. Who's his father? Israel. And to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've had? Shall I... Jacob, now Israel, equating himself as the son. Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually bow down before you to the ground? You see, Jacob understood the dream. Jacob saw the dream as him being the sun, as Rachel being the moon, and as the eleven stars being the brothers of Joseph. Shall we bow down to you, this one who came from Israel? You see, Jacob understands. He sees the picture. He's the sun. Rachel's the moon. The stars are there. Why? Why isn't there 12? 
Because Joseph's the twelfth. Joseph's the twelfth star. You see, in the main point of Genesis chapter 37 in the Abrahamic covenant would be ultimately fulfilled through the Messiah. See, the legitimacy of the Abrahamic covenant, which is passed down through the ages, through the patriarchs, to Israel, to Jacob, and to, therefore, the sons of that, is that the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled through the Messiah, whom Joseph is a picture of in Genesis chapter 37. You see, Israel and all the patriarchs would bow down to Christ. Now go back to Revelation chapter 12, because here in Revelation chapter 12, the administration of God's divine purposes for this earth would come through the 12 tribes of Israel. She's clothed in the sun, the moon under her feet. On her head is this crown of 12 stars, and then finally... She's with child. This is her condition. She's with child. She's in pain. She's crying out in labor. That always reminds us when we think about that. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 3. The promise of the seed that would come. The, The one in which the serpent would bruise the heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. The promise, the the proto-euangelion, the the first gospel, if you will. And accompanying that great joy of childbirth would first come great pain. And so from the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, all the way until Christ was born physically upon this earth, there was great pain, great anguish, Because of the consequences of sin. Because of Israel's disobedience. And yet, through all of the pain, was the expectation throughout all of the ages that would center itself on the Son who would come. See, throughout all the succeeding ages, as the focus narrowed, from the the general promise in Genesis chapter 3, as it focuses narrowly and more narrowly down through the seed of Abraham and then down through the seed of David. And then this expectation became scripturally embodied in one nation, Israel. And while the birth came in a moment, time the whole period of waiting the whole history from the beginning all the way to the time when christ is born is in view here in revelation chapter 12 as as israel is waiting for the coming one this is why i said this is a synopsis from heaven not just of the tribulation but takes us all the way back to the beginning all the way back to this time when satan is trying to thwart the attempts of god to save his people all who would believe So Israel is seen here as this waiting one, this anticipating woman who's pregnant. From Adam to Abraham to David, down through the ages, age upon age until that day. 
That day in the line of David through Mary, Jesus was born. God with us. He came through Israel. And so this radiant woman here, elevated to an exalted position because of her son, Israel elevated, not because itself, not because God saw something good in them. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, or Romans chapter one or chapter nine says, just quoting the Old Testament. They're not elevated because something in them, but simply because God chose them. They would be the chosen instrument through which Jesus Christ would come, who is destined to rule the earth. The woman is Israel. This is Israel. The chosen family, the people of God. And the male child is Jesus Christ. And you notice in verse 5, by the way, she gave birth to a son, the male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's speaking of the millennial rule. Still to come from the perspective, yet spoken of in terms as if it's already happening, is to rule with a rod of iron. And notice, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Do you notice the ministry of Jesus Christ isn't listed for us there? It's as if right from his birth, the what is to come is ruling. All we get is this picture, he's caught up to the throne. The ascension of Jesus Christ. You know what's in between in your English Bible, the word iron and the word and? You know what's there in reality? The parenthetical place of the church. That's, that's, that's where we are in this picture. This isn't about the church. This is about Israel. This is about God's plan for Israel. We're, we're grafted into all of this spiritual blessing that God gave Israel by the grace of God. Because of Jesus Christ, who came through Israel by God's great design. So when you look at chapter 12, verse 1, you go, man, what a sign. What a sign. What a, what a directional aid. What a glaring in front of me, speaking this great sign. What a picture. God resumes his plan with Israel. Satan never wants it to succeed. Satan hasn't wanted that from the start. That's why in verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. A great red dragon. What's this dragon want to do? He wants to devour the child. If I devour the child, there is no plan. If I get rid of the one through whom everything's supposed to happen, the one through whom God promised, the one through whom God spoke, this will never happen. It'll never succeed. God will never rule. So she gives birth to a son. And yet Israel, during the tribulation, will flee to the wilderness the remnant people of God, and God will protect them.
for three and a half years. That's what we see happening. We're getting this view of of history, God's great plan for his chosen people, Israel. What a display. What a display of God's sovereignty. What a display of Satan's desire to usurp God. And all of that will unfold right before our eyes as we continue through from chapter 12 all the way till we get to chapter 16 and the, we get back to this picture of earth and the bold judgments are unleashed. That's what we're going to see. And we'll get to the other sign next time. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at all that you show us in your word We're thankful that you are the true and righteous one. Lord, our minds are spinning, really. Hard to grasp all the detail, hard to see all the happenings. And yet it's not confusing to you at all. You know exactly what's going on. You're sovereign through it all. Just like when Satan assumed that Job loved you because you cared for him. And so you allowed Satan to torment him for a time. Satan believes he can thwart your plan, thwart what you're doing. We know better. No one is more powerful. You are the almighty God. And we know that Satan is a vanquished foe. But until that day when he's finally thrown into the outer darkness, into hell itself, a lake burning with fire and brimstone, he still continues to try to trip us up, still tries to confuse your plan, still tries to get in the way. But Lord, we trust you. We trust your word. We know you have a plan. We know you haven't forgotten your people. And we're thankful to be grafted into that love, grafted into the great gift which you brought through Israel, Jesus Christ. Thank you for our salvation that came according to the gospel. Where we heard of Jesus Christ, where we know of our sin, where we repent of our sin and express faith in Christ alone. Thank you for our salvation here and now. May we use these things that we understand and know to tell others about Christ that they too might know you. Help us to be faithful servants of yours, continually evangelizing the lost until that day when we are joined together with you in the glories of heaven where we can praise you forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.